Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco, and this is episode 324, dated Friday, September 8th, 2023. You are listening to the In Perspective weekly podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hello, everyone. And welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco, and this is episode 324, dated Friday, September 8th, 2023. Peter Alchel, our co-host, is not going to be with us today. He has a prior commitment, but he will be back next week. So I'm riding solo today. Before we continue, and before I introduce our special guest for this program, let me thank those people who make it possible for In Perspective to be available to the general public. We start out with our producer, editor, Raymond Gay. Thank you for what you do. I want to thank Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline for posting our shows on Reading Door number 15. Thank you for that. I also want to thank Jacqueline Sylvia, our web designer, for archiving and perspective programs on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. If you want to hear an archived show from the past, just go there. On the site that I just mentioned, click on In Perspective Podcasts and you will get to choose which show you want to hear. And finally, the media outlets. I want to thank those of you who do that for uh, airing our show. We appreciate that very much. And Tom, thank you for being our host for today's program. You know, thanks for taking the time to be with us today to help out. And of course, we're our mainstreamed on ACB Media 5, and so I want to thank those people for the opportunity to have that done, too. Our guest has been on our show several times, and she's so much in demand that uh, we decided to bring her back. We're talking about the blind history lady, Peggy Chong. She always has some fascinating stories to tell about blind people who've made their mark in history. And I've suggested to Peggy several times that she ought to write a book about these people. And I correct me if I'm wrong, Peggy, but have you decided to do that? I may have forgotten what you told me. Yes, I have. In fact, I have uh, several books. I have one that is in print, Don Mahoney Television Star, about a blind television kitty show host who uh, kept his blindness hidden for 10 years. And he had to do that because he felt if he came out as a blind person, he would lose his job. And I've also self-published on Smashwords. That's www.smashwords.com. And if you just type in Peggy Chong or The Blind History Lady, up pops my books. And I've got about 13 of them up there. Well, I'm not surprised, Peggy, because of all the stories that you've told us in the past and continue to tell us. So I'm definitely not surprised at that. Well, it's there's a lot of stories to be told. And right now I'm primarily concentrating on my monthly email list. I have a monthly email that I send out to all of my subscribers and anyone's on, welcome to join. I'm on the list. Just me an email at theblindhistorylady at gmail.com and I'll be glad to put you on. And my stories um, sometimes take a while to evolve because 
everything's not on the internet. Contrary to some young people's belief, it's not there. And it takes me a while to do the research and keep the notes. And then six months later, I run across another little note and I add that to it. And uh, pretty soon a story pops up. Sometimes a story pops up right away. But by and large, it takes me a bit of time to research all of the people and contact, in many cases, I try and contact their descendants. Usually it's like a grandniece or nephew or something. As we all know, a lot of blind people were discouraged from having children. So they don't have a direct descendant to keep their memory alive. So I often reach out to the nieces and nephews and ask them, hey, tell me about your blind ancestor. And those who respond to me are very happy to do so. I think about two-thirds of them think I'm a nut, so they just leave me alone. But it's really fun to dig into the past and research these people uh, through whatever records I can find on them. Sadly, so many of our blind ancestors left barely a toe print in the sand of time. Sure. Well, we're very happy to have you back, Peggy. Welcome to In Perspective. And before we continue with your stories, I wanted to congratulate you on your award that you received recently. Um, Could you briefly tell us what that was? Yes. I received the Jacob Blatton Award from the National Federation of the Blind for $5,000 to continue my research. And this is dedicated specifically to a particular project. Uh, that I am going to be working on. I found in the Library of Congress that there are old records from the Harmon Foundation that have six, 17 boxes of records regarding an award for blind people that was given between 1928 and 1932. Now, there's a lot of significance to this award in that The Harmon Foundation is dedicated to providing financial support for black artists. And in looking at what I can find out online about this file, these files, I am noting that most of the names, all of the names I recognize are white people. So why did this foundation start an award for blind people primarily going to white people. Also, I am noticing that most of the awards that I can tell so far are going to like broom makers, um, college students, not necessarily your, um, I really did do a good job type blind guy and have this wonderful business. Uh, why did they start the award and why did they stop it in 1932? Um, I'd like to know who was on the committee. I think that might help me understand some as well. Um, I would like to know a lot of the stories, and I'm hoping that in these files I'm going to find biographies, letters of recommendation. Um, I don't know if there was an application or not. Um, I am hoping to find out you know, what they did, how they went blind, um, why did they get the award? Uh, 
I understand there was a monetary component to the award. What was the monetary component? I don't know. Uh, did the depression have something to do with stopping the awards? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I am so looking forward to going to D.C. I figure it'll take me about two weeks to go down to the Library of Congress. And what I'll have to do, because there's 17 boxes of folders, files, hopefully some photographs. That would be really cool, too. Um, and I will take a photograph of the documents and bring them back home. And it'll take me probably two or three years to sort through it, find out uh, what stories are involved. Are there people in there that I already have been researching? I know of four names that I recognize. So that is really cool. Uh, one of the names is a man that I had not considered someone that would have enough to research. So that is kind of interesting to me that he was, uh, his in this list are these the names of the people that got the awards? I don't know that. Are these the names of the people that uh, people submitted applications for? I don't really know that either. Uh, so I'm really interested to find out what's in the files, what stories they have to tell, and hopefully explain to me why a foundation primarily focusing on black individuals, artists in particular, would give such an award. So that's that's uh, why I got the Balotin Award and what I intend to do with it and to start that process of getting into these files. Well, good luck with that, Peggy. I'm sure that everything will work out. You'll be able to sort everything out, gather as much as you possibly can. Congratulations again on your award. So who would you like to talk about today from the past? Who, what are blind people other blind people have made history. Well, today I thought I would talk about a lady named Jenny Coward Jackson because uh, she has come up in a lot of my interviews lately and she has been a person that has attracted the attention of interviewers uh, when I've been spreading around, here, this is what I've been working on and um, showing them my um, uh my book, it's sort of an introduction type book that I use for promotion and so on. And Jenny Coward Jackson, Jenny Jackson, um, grew up primarily in Kansas. Her family moved around some when she was a kid. Um, she lost her eyesight and the one eye at a young age and the other eye started to get worse and worse, you know, as it goes. And she finished eighth grade and started teaching. Um, because back then we're talking the 1870s. I was going to say uh, no, no master's education, no master's degree in teaching, nothing like that. Not even a bachelor's or an associate's. No, if you no. got an eighth grade education, um, you know, a little later on they had the um, colleges that were a one-year program that uh, a lot of teenage girls went through and became teachers when they were 15, 16 years old. But this is this even predates that. And so she taught in the public schools, uh, small country schools for a couple of years, and then lost all the sight in the second eye. 
So she went to the Kansas State School for the Blind, which is in Wyandotte at that time, which is now Kansas City, but they changed the name. And um, she taught there for a little bit as well, because she came in as an older student. And uh, so she, while she was learning to read and write in New York Point and uh, learning to travel and such as a blind person, now they didn't teach travel in the way we think of it today. Uh, they just taught people that you need to be more confident and pay attention to what's under your feet, that kind of thing. And especially women were not really encouraged to travel by themselves. But in the schools for the blind, women basically had a couple of career options. You could be a seamstress, you could be a rug weaver, or you could be a teacher of music. Um, Jenny had a lot more ambition than, than that. But if you were going to be a teacher of music, you had to be able to travel and know how to feel confident when you did that. She left the school for the blind um, in the late 1880s and came to Colorado with her family. When she got here, I guess she came back in the early 1900s because I have to tell you one other piece about her. Um, There was an organization, the first organization that was of blind people and its purpose was to promote higher education for blind people across the country. And this was going to be looking at a federal program. What's the Um, name of the organization? You would ask me that, wouldn't you? It's this really long name, like the American Association of the, of, of the, for higher education for blind people. Um, and I know I'm missing a couple of words in there. This organization had, uh, people from Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, and a few from out east that formed this organization to go after federal legislation to start. At first, they wanted a college like Gallaudet, a college for the blind. Realized that really was not going to happen. The, the, the people were not there. The deaf population is twice that of the blind population. So the numbers just wouldn't be there for a college. So they wanted to go after education, uh, higher education, mandated through the federal government, not through states. Uh, that didn't happen either. Uh, the organization um, uh, kind of got absorbed after a few years. But by this time, Jenny had moved to Colorado. She was here by 1900 and um, found a desert of opportunities in Colorado. It's interesting, I mean, Dodge was, you know, you think of um, Gunsmoke and Kansas, Dodge City, that was kind of the Wild West. Uh, well, Colorado was a, even more of the West out then, and she could not believe that there was nothing other than the School for the Blind, which did not t- take pupils um, and keep them past the age of 25. So if you went blind at 20, you could not go to the School for the Blind in Colorado to receive any kind of training. She thought that was just really terrible. She um, went to Denver, 
and decided she was going to live in Denver finally. Um, she was living with her family on a farm in southern Colorado. Moved to Denver, met up with a few more blind people, and they got legislation together a couple of times because it didn't pass the first time uh, that started the Colorado Industries for the Blind program. It was a sheltered shop and provided also some rooms to live in for people coming to learn how to make brooms, mattresses, rug weaving. The idea was to not to be the broom shop where you came and stayed for 20 years, but that you would come and you would learn how to be a blind person because they also taught some New York points um, and a little bit on traveling and stuff like that while you were making brooms. They realized it just wasn't enough. It wasn't meeting the needs. And the people that were coming were people that had nowhere else to go. Families were not supporting them. Uh, it was either the Colorado Industries for the Blind or the Poor Shop. And they didn't want to go to the poor farm, so uh, they tried to get into Colorado Industries for the Blind. Well, that just wasn't enough. So Jenny decided to start lobbying for a home teacher for the blind that would travel across the state and work with people where they lived. And she did get some money for that. She spent her salary and more. She had a a little stipend for supplies, but not much. Um, She would travel to Pueblo or Boulder or... uh, Grand Junction, she would stay for a couple of weeks. And what she would do is she would find all these blind people. She would usually uh, put an ad in the paper saying she was coming to town when she was coming to town uh, for people to leave a message at a particular store. That was very common at, at that time. Uh, like Pano tuners, when they were coming to town, they would say, please leave a message at George Smith's um mercantile or Sally Ann's hat shop uh, if you want your piano tuned. Sally, um, Jenny did the same thing. She would say, please leave a message if you are a blind person wishing for me to visit you at so-and-so's uh, general store. So she'd come into town. She'd pick up her messages. And after a time or two of visiting the town, she would have a place to stay that she could rely on. She often had a church hall she could use, the back room of a business, sometimes the parlor in a hotel. She would get the people together, and she would give them all slates and styluses, and she taught them to read and write in New York Point. Now, they didn't have much to read because there was no library for the blind uh, that people could easily access, and it only had like 20 volumes anyway. Um, so she would get them like the Matilda Ziegler magazine, uh, have that, sign them all up. Uh, she would bring paper and have them write a story or a letter or something important to them. And then when they finished that, they would pass it to the next person in class and the next person was to read it and correct it, circulating their 
what they had written because that reinforced their reading as well as their writing. And she would get them started sometimes on a handicraft. It depended on the people that were there. If it was a lot of women, it was usually like knitting or crocheting lace or what have you. If it was men, um, especially some of them who were already very handy with tools, she would get them to start to build little things. And then she would come back six months later, a year later, and she was often surprised herself at some of the craft work that was done. So she started then, after her groups were getting started, of setting a date where let's do, um, in November, I'll come back and we'll have so-and-so's typewriter store. We'll put in their window some of the items from our group and we'll sell them. And actually, some of those people from those groups, because of Jenny's getting the material out there, place to sell it, getting their name out there and seeing that, oh, Tom Smith, he really did a really nice job on that table that I bought. I'll ask him if he will build me something else. And some of those people actually made enough money to live off of after they learned how to get back into crafting. I say that because a lot of them were before but thought they couldn't anymore. And she said, oh, no, you can. You can do that. So then Jenny um, started talking to the governor of Colorado and telling the governor that we need a commission for the blind here in Colorado that will make all of this training um, possible for anybody in the state. We need to have a reliable pension that is the same across the board, whether you live in northern or southern Colorado or just across the county line. Turns out the governor was pretty much blind himself. That was Elias M. Ammons, who was the governor from 1913 to 1915. And this really was interesting to him because he just, he knew from his experience in the last 30, 40 years as a blind person, there was nothing. And he was, you know, he'd been losing his sight over these many years. So he was interested. Uh, Jenny found a man by the name of Lute Wilcox, who operated Field and Farm magazine. He was the printer, he was the publisher, and he wrote, some people say, half of the magazine under other people's names. But he still, he was uh, one of the major authors of his magazine. He also ran a printing business, a pub um publicity business, and he was the president of the Press Association for Denver. So another man that was um, in prominent circles, a blind guy. Then in 1916, a man just kind of showed up at the state legislature. He was elected from Aspen, who had been a lawyer for decades but lost his sight about 1910 and spent a lot of money trying to find somebody to teach him how to be a blind person, to teach him how to read and write again, to teach him how to get around 
and he spent a lot of money looking and found nobody. So again, he was in the right place at the right time. He comes in and he meets these guys and they put together this legislation that passes in 1918 and it provides for adult training that there's no age limit to the training that you can get to learn how to be a blind person that um, the state would reimburse counties for, they called it pensions for the blind at the time. And that's probably why the legislation kind of all fell apart around 1923. Um, but it provided a lot of other resources for people coming to Colorado industries for the blind, the workshop, expanding the workshop and so on. Now, Jenny then, became very much in demand traveling the state. Her budget was increased so that she could reach out. She had an assistant. Um, she had someone else that she could report to that did secretarial stuff because people realized there was this big need. Uh, part of that was due to Jenny as well because she had been traveling around the state. Before the legislation was passed, she asked the people in her group, please contact your state representative and your senator and tell them this bill has to pass. Please ask your family to do so. And she would ask the businesses in town to do so. And some of these businesses would put up these petitions in the store. People come in and sign them and they'd send them off uh, to Denver so that they could take them to the state legislature. Uh, Jenny continued to do that until about 1923 when, like I said, everything kind of fell apart. There were a lot of um, outside uh, problems uh, that Colorado was having at the time, dramatic changes that contributed all to this. You can't say it was just one thing or that somebody didn't like the legislation. Um, and that was certainly the main reason that they went after the pensions for the blind. But you had the Ku Klux Klan that had infiltrated the Democratic and Republican parties here. Uh, they wanted to get rid of a lot of social work programs, especially if they went to Germans, Irish, Catholics. Um, so they were trying to kill a lot of the charitable organizations that were serving those people. Um, she had a lot of that to kind of work through um, and try and make everybody see that wasn't a political thing. Uh, then you also have kind of the birth of social work that is coming into play. Uh, the community chest is now becoming an organized um, charitable institution, much like the United Way would become. And so they, the especially the political people and everything wanted everything funneled through the community chest. Uh, that meant that they went after the organizations of the blind and said, you no longer can give your people clothing. You no longer can have the little food pantry. Um, you no longer can provide for the burials of your blind members. All that needs to go through the government or through the community chest. So there was a lot of political struggles going on at that time to control the charities and their work. Now, Jenny kind of powered through a lot of that, but by the late 1920s, uh, they wanted Jenny to retire. And so they, they, uh, 
told her that, you know, you you need to step back. We're going to have all of these young ladies come in, and they're going to teach blind people how to do things. They've got a college degree, and you don't. So Jenny was kept on for a few more years. When they finally let her go about 1933, they refused to give her a pension because she hadn't really been a state employee, even though she had worked over 20 years, and a state employee could have received a pension. But she she wasn't a state employee exactly because she had been under this special program, even though she had gotten her checks through the Department of Education and so on. Now, they had to keep her on because Jenny was the one who taught those teachers who were much more qualified than her um, some of the techniques that she used because they didn't know it. So you kind of wonder uh, why she was pushed out, why she, where she was. But she started also uh, a reading group that, like her circles, uh, th- they would write up usually already written materials so that they would transcribe um, a book, poetry, music, and they would circulate that amongst the blind community here in Denver. Sometimes it reached further out, even as far as Kansas, their little circle. And Jenny passed away. Uh, just a couple of years later, but the circle went on for about another 10 years doing all of this transcribing, and it was blind women mostly that did it. They would just get together, you know, at somebody's house and and uh, have coffee and cake all, and, uh, all day long. They'd just sit and transcribe material. Uh, she did that uh, until her death as well. So that's kind of the interesting lady of, of my time right now. You ask me in another month or two and I'll have somebody else to tell you about. But she's she's the one that attracts my attention right now. Sure. Well, we appreciate that story. Uh, and I, I guess back then, like you said, if you're finishing in the eighth grade, you're going to be jumping right into something that today we have to go to college for. It, it's amazing <laughs> how times have changed uh, and evolved. Isn't it? And how much more we have to learn, too. I think back then we learned a lot more about how to how to go to work than we do today. But uh you know, you're eight years in school, by that time you should be able to go home and run the family farm, include, including taking care of the books. True. At this point I just want to mention that you're listening to In Perspective and my name is Bob Branco, and we have Peggy Chong, the blind history lady with us today. I do want to say hi to a listener, which I should have done at the beginning of the program. I, we do give shout-outs to listeners who send their opinions and comments in support of our show. So, Rick Troiano of Florida, thank you very much for your commitment and support. Uh, let me check with Tom to find out if anybody would like to talk to you, Peggy. We do have an audience listening to you live right now. And so, Tom, do we have any hands raised? We don't seem to have any hands right at this time. Okay. Let me turn to Paul, because I know Paul is listening on the phone. Paul, did you want to ask Peggy a question? Uh, well, I just have a, a, a comment that um, it's it's really interesting when, when she talks about this person 
going back in history and and how difficult it 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 must have been at that time. I mean, to just being able to survive and yet her advocating for uh, blind people. It's just interesting to to look back in history and and see, you know, how how people try to to move things forward. And back then, you know, women were not always encouraged to travel alone, but she would take the train or sometimes a horse and buggy, uh, but many times trains to her locations. She would travel by herself. Um, she would walk around the communities without a cane. Um, she instilled the confidence of other people to learn to travel on the trains by themselves as well, which I thought was pretty cool for a woman who, um, you know, women were still not always thought of as the leader, but people thought of her as a leader, as a terrific role model, as an example to what they were going to do. And she could get these business people to do some of the doggondest stuff, um, get them to donate free uh, to some of her classes, material for them to make items. Uh, she had, for several years, a booth at the state fair. And so the state fair was in the fall, September. And so she would spend the like month of August just going around the state and getting these items or having people get the items to the fairs. Is somebody going to be exhibiting from your town? Can they bring them to Pueblo? And I will see to it that they get in the booth. And she would work the fair and talk about the need for blind people to have uh, classes in how to read and write, but classes in how to do things, learn how to do things again, because you can do this. And she would have everything from, you know, lace cuffs and lace collars, which were, you know, real popular at the time. If you had your dress and it was frayed at the cuffs, you just added a new lace um, cuff to it uh, back then, made your, your clothes last longer, um, to everything from tables and chairs um baskets, all sorts of things that she would sell at the fair for the people. And she always gave the money, all of it, back to them. She didn't take the money, any skimming off the top. All right. Uh, So, Tom, are there any hands raised? If not, I'm going to have Peggy tell another story. And please feel free to interrupt us if there are no hands raised when you find out. You actually do have some hands. Uh, The first one would be Alice Massa. Alice. Okay. Welcome, Alice. Thank you, Bob, and congratulations, Peggy, and thank you for being such a wonderful storyteller. I so admire all the research you do, and my one question is, when you are doing your research, uh, do you read New York Point, or did you have to learn to read New York Point, or did you find someone else to read documents in New York Point to you? There are very little New York Point documents remaining anymore. Um, it is not something that I've learned. I've poked at it a little bit because I do find it kind of interesting. Um, one of the reasons I find it interesting is it's two extra dots than Braille. But I had a, uh, I found a photograph taken in about 1918. Um, 
it was the time when they were trying to decide what was going to be the reading method for the blind in the United States. And they had these Braille Bibles there. And they had the New York Point Bible, which came up to the top of this lady's chest. And then they had the Braille Bible that was over her head. And then they had the moon-type Bible, which just went way up in the air. Um, and so I wondered to myself why it was more condensed than it was. And I really would love to see a comparison of a book side by side, you know, um, a Braille book of uh, maybe what's a Little House on the Prairie and then the New York Point version of Little House on the Prairie. Or did they just have different margins? I don't really know what the difference is. But no, I haven't had to do that. Um, thank goodness. Sadly, just about all of our records as blind people are heading for the trash bins and the shredders. Uh, Iowa closed the school for the blind in Iowa, which had its history back to 1850s. And they had rooms of file cabinets, boxes, artifacts. And when it closed, uh, blind people were not allowed to have any say in what was to be kept and what was not to be kept. And they moved it all somewhere, I think, to the school for the deaf. I'm not really sure because they closed the buildings down and sold the land. But that's where the birth of AFB was. That's where people came for regional and national meetings in the early 1900s. The alumni from that school have gone on to do terrific stuff, and they kept records and all sorts of things, and I'm afraid much of that went to the shredder. Um, I found that here in Colorado. I've just been a part of preserving documents dating back to 1915, and we are in the process of getting them on the Colorado Virtual Library. Uh, we had, they were in print and handwritten material, but even the typewritten documents from the 40s and 50s, um, the ink had bled, uh, especially if it was during the war, it was cheap paper, uh, some were molded. Um, the print font is different. So we digitized all that, and then we did an OCR scan of everything, and just as I expected, almost nothing was re- legible for us as blind people. So we spent, thank you, COVID, very much, over two years, almost three, of having volunteers then transcribe all of that. They would get the PDF, the the digitized document, and then they would write it up in a Word file. And we had over 100 volunteers spending thousands of hours doing that. And now that those files are readable for us as blind people, uh, we're putting them up on the Colorado Virtual Library and anyone from around the world will have access to those documents now. Peggy, I wanted to refer back a little bit. You referred to moon type, and tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't moon type raised print? Not exactly. Raised print was what Perkins used uh, for a lot of their books, but moon type was developed because the people thought 
that especially older people were having a harder time with it, too much concentrating on the letters. So it was sort of symbols, but it was a raised, um, raised print, if you will. They weren't dots like they are now. They were symbols and they were angled in different shapes or standing right. up straight. Because yeah. I remember seeing moon type back in the 60s. Yep. There's not much of that left either. Right. Thank you, Alice. Tom, do we have anybody else? We certainly do. We have three more people that would like to talk. First of those would be Teresa. Okay, Teresa. <laughs> Teresa, you may all mute. <laughs> okay. First of all, Tom... No, you were not seeing double. I had to step away from my computer, so that's why I went to the phone. Um, Ms. Chong, I'm, am I mistaken to um, say, or if I'm stepping out of line, did you not write an article on another um, blind um, female named Emily Raspberry? She was an African-American uh, teacher from West Virginia. Yes, I did. She is another lady that is fascinating to me as well. Uh, I bring that up because she was my middle school English teacher in my middle school years, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Oh, she had a love for words. She read Braille very well, and I read this um, article that was submitted to our alumni email list, and I said, "Oh my gosh, whoever did this article really did her homework." Well, thank you. She was one that took about five years because she never married. She never had children. And her family was broken up when she was such a young child. That's right. Her mother passed away when she Mm -hmm. was like seven years old. She was um, 13 when her mother passed away. 13. 13, Yeah, she went to the school for the blind for the colored at the age of 12. Yes. And she spent the whole year there. And when she came home, um, she found out that her mother was very ill and her mother passed away within a day of her coming home. And her mother was buried a few days later. And um, a couple of days after the funeral, she was being sent off to West Virginia to live with her stepsister. Right. I remember the article saying how in the... Um the school for the blind, you know, the uh, the uh, black school in Alabama, there were not enough, there were very few books. Uh, there was a number given, but I don't remember. So she was impressed when she um, attended the uh, colored school for the deaf and blind in, in West Virginia, that at least there were more books for her to read. Yep. She enjoyed reading. Um, that um, facility was the eventually later on became the um, state vocational rehabilitation center. She was, I I really found that she was the first black woman that I first blind black woman that I found that got a master's degree. And that's what saved her when the two schools merged is because every teacher from the colored school for the deaf and blind, um, did not get a position when they merged the two schools with the white school. There were only two that moved over. One was a teacher for the deaf and one was Emily Raspberry. And the reason was because both of them had masters and many of the teachers at the school for the blind for the white did not. Um, So they really couldn't diss her. Right. And I, 
and sadly, she wasn't always, um, I even heard this from a, uh, the mouth of a white teacher, a retired white teacher, that she wasn't always received well by the um, faculty at the School for the Blind, and, you know, at the White School for the Blind. But And we all had always thought she had grown up in um, Boston and gone to school in Perkins because of her accent. But I, I remember, as, as I read in the article, that she spent a lot of her summers up in Boston. Yes, she was. She wanted to be <clears throat> considered a well-cultured woman rather than someone from the South. Right. And yeah. she was very well-cultured. She loved classical music, Pam, <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> she, oh, she loved cl- classical music, and she loved to read. And she and, uh, wanted us to go ahead. I was just going to say the the story that always impressed me most was that there was a restaurant in town, and it had sort of a, a a window that stuck out. You know, the when you were walking down the street, you had to walk like three four steps into the door, and then come into the restaurant. And the custom was that black people ate by the kitchen. Um, Emily would have none of that. She ate in the window and she cut her own meat to the dismay of one of the other blind white teachers who couldn't cut his own meat. Huh. And oh it really goodness. bothered him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but she wanted everybody to see she was sitting in that restaurant. I don't blame her. I don't blame her at all. Well, thank you very much, Teresa, for your contribution. You're welcome. And uh, let's see who else we have, Tom. Next up, we have a phone number. I think I know who it is, but I'll just call the phone number and see if I'm right. 518 ending in 517. This is Mary Beth. Uh, I thought and, so. Okay. Yeah, you were right, Tom. Okay. <laughs> I got two two quick questions. Um, as far as, you know, all the history sort of being just tossed out and destroyed, why is it that nobody is picked up, not the American Printing House, not AFB, um, not any of the people that, 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 you know, are sort of purported to be the curators of some of this stuff. That's my first question. And the second question is um, what happened to all the hand copy books in Iowa? I don't think I'm going to like this answer, but that's okay. Thanks very much. Okay. Well, the, the second question is easier to answer, so I'm going to start there. A lot of them are still there. A lot of the handcuffed oh, books are still there in the collection. Um, the second question is not quite so easy to answer um, in that the American Foundation for the Blind has cut back on its storage and its um, physical space. So they're not collecting as much. Um, they are digitizing such. Um, but there's a lot of, like I said, with Iowa, it, I, <laughs> Being the uh, type of person I was willing to take on transferring some of that material, and I didn't know where it was going to go, but I was certainly going to find a place if they were going to let me. Um, I wanted to be a part of sorting it to make sure that people who were sorting it knew what was important to be kept, that I believed if they were just keeping minutes, annual reports, um, that if they were going to toss out correspondence, a lot of history was going to be lost there. But that's a state's property. And I think other states would say the same too. It is 
state's property, not something you can just hand over to somebody. And with all of the new legislation in the last, say, 20 years regarding privacy, they feel, a lot of the states feel, they just can't even let you go in and see some of that if they're keeping it anyway. Uh, the best I think we can hope for is asking that the states digitize the collections that they have and store them where at least people doing research can at least go in with permission or clearance or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, I've seen just so many stuff just being tossed in the trash because people couldn't read it anymore. Uh, the, all the Braille volumes didn't even have any print on them at all, so the sighted people who were tasked with cleaning it out just pitched it. Um, but again, I think a lot of it, the biggest issue with our schools for the blind, with some of the state institutions for the blinds, the homes for the blind, the workshops for the blind, they, that is part of state property. And so it's not something that they can just give away. And if they don't want to keep it, <clears throat> you know, we're just not a priority. So we can ask for digitization of those records and that have them be stored in state archives. Thank you very much, Mary Beth. All right. So I believe we have another person for the hand. We raised. have one more, and that would be Nora. Nora. Oh, okay. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be here and great to meet you, Peggy. And um, my question is, well, uh, when did we, I, I didn't hear as well as I should, but when, when was this lady, uh, which one is again? Um, oh gosh, my memory's out. <laughs> the lady um, I was talking about? Yeah. Jenny Coward Jackson. Um, okay. she died about 1935 and mm-hmm. she was born about 19, 1958, I mean, sorry, 1858 or something like that. Oh, 1858, and wow, and that's, that's good, and she became blind in her young years? Right? Correct. Yep, she became, she became blind in her teens. She lost the sight in one eye when she was about 12, and the other yeah. one just slowly went away. Yeah, okay, and I'm, I'm so glad to hear about her, I keep forgetting her name. Not, I kept saying Penny. <laughs> it's Jenny, Jenny Coward Jackson. You yeah, know, okay. I, I was, we heard the song in the store, 8675309, you know, it's asked for Jenny. I've uh, contemplated. Oh, yeah. Thank <laughs> Peggy, you. Peggy, I've contemplated calling that number locally just to see if a woman named Jenny answers the phone. <laughs> You know, for years, you know, when people say, can I have your phone number? Are you part of our rewards team? You know, and I'd say that the whatever the uh, area code was and then 8675309 and they say, are you Jenny? And go, yep. Mm -hmm." (laughs) So I wasn't the only one who used it. (laughs) Anything else, Nora? Mm, Oh, yeah. How do you talk? You see, she became a teacher at what age? Uh, about 14. Oh, that's good. Lauren, when Laura Ingle was becoming a teacher, she had to wait till she was 16. It depended on where you lived and when yeah. uh, they needed a teacher. That's right. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution, Nora. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else, Tom, at this time? 
Yeah, and we just have one more girl uh, right now, Pam Coffee. It would be your turn. All right, Pam. Okay. I'll make this very, very brief. I once knew a lady. I, I live in Alabama, and this lady did as well. She was blind her entire life. She was, even though she was Caucasian, she needed a job. And she did have a bachelor's degree and became a a music teacher. And they needed a teacher at the School for the Negro Blind in Alabama. Now, I don't know much about what that school was like, you know, at this time. This would have been in the maybe early... 1940s and so that was where the job opening was and so for several years she taught school at the um or taught music at the the school for the negro blind and then at some point it the two merged and um so you know she taught had a much wider, uh, broader, uh, group of students to draw from. But the, the sad thing about that was that not only did that school have the, uh, African American students, but if you had an additional handicap that wasn't deafness, then regardless of your um, your race, you went to that school because that's where the kids that were had learning disabilities as well is where they ended up. So um but yeah this this lady taught there for several years and of course has long since died but um, but she did. And that was in Alabama. The Schools for the Blind for the Colored have a very interesting history. And uh, one lady told me a couple of years ago that she was going to try and study all of that. I hope she does. Uh, that mm-hmm. would be a lot to study. Uh, oh, yes. The Schools for the Blind uh, did not have consistent academic standards across the country. So in the 1940s, there was oh, yeah. this um, movement to make sure that the teachers of the schools for the blind had a college degree, which meant the schools mm-hmm. for the blind for the colored mm-hmm. who didn't pay diddly squat for their mm-hmm. instructors mm-hmm. Uh, were probably going to lose all their teachers or mm-hmm. be discredited, disaccredited. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the schools for the blind for the colored, especially in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, and so on, uh, took part in a program I think I wrote this a little bit in the Emily Raspberry story that um, the AFB started with. Uh, in we have about one more minute mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, okay. anyway, um, the, that really upgraded the um, the teachers in those southern states, particularly, so that mm-hmm. they could have teachers in those schools. Well, gotcha. thank you, thank you, Pam, for your contribution as, as always. Thank Peggy, you. We're going we're gonna to have to wrap it up, Peggy, because oh, wow. unfortunately time has 
run out on us here on In Perspective. But again, thanks for taking the time. We love having you on the show whenever you come on. You have a lot of fascinating stories to tell us. And uh, keep up the good work and keep up with your research. And, and good luck on your books as well. Well, thank you. And thanks for inviting me again. I appreciate it. Uh, we also appreciate you too, Peggy. Thanks again. Thanks, Next. Peggy. And thanks, Bob. Peter. Hey. <laughs> I don't know how long you've been listening, but we're glad you're here. Anyway, uh, next week we're going to have a weather anthology. A group of authors are going to come on, and this ought to be fun. Stay tuned for that. Anyway, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Tom, for being our host. Thanks for our thanks for the participants to uh, be here today. And I'm Bob Branco. Peter, we'll have you on, of course, next week. Go safe with God's abundant blessings, everybody. Have a great weekend. 